This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Hi, I'm Lauren Martin from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law, and this is our Five Questions podcast. Today, we have five questions about so-called safe zones. To answer them, we have Professor Jeff Gilbert, law professor at the University of Essex and visiting fellow at UNSW Sydney. Professor Gilbert is also the co-author with Anna Magdalena Roosh of the Caldor Centre Policy Brief, Creating Safe Zones and Safe Corridors in Conflict Situations, Providing Protection at Home or Preventing the Search for Asylum. Nearly half a million people have been killed in the ongoing conflict in Syria, and millions more are seeking refuge across the borders. Many world leaders have called for safe zones in Syria, so this policy brief looks at a critical question at a critical time. Thanks for being with us, Professor Gilbert. Thank you. Can we start off with simply, what are safe zones? Safe zones are not defined in international law. In fact, the term covers a variety of different uh, concepts that have got various names, such as safety zones, humanitarian zones, demilitarized zones, non-defended cities. In the past, what we have seen is these entities developing names being given to them. Sometimes they are defined. The International Law of Armed Conflict provides some definitions of some of these terms. But by and large, we have a practice that is used in time of armed conflict and the law is very underdeveloped. It comes out of that basic principle of the law of armed conflict, the principle of distinction, that is that one should never attack civilians. They should never be the object, the target of an attack. And if that were followed, okay, there would be no problem with safe zones because if they were properly established, those areas would truly not be the object of an attack. But, and this is the problem, the principal distinction is not often followed nowadays in armed conflict. And a whole variety of different branches of international law, international refugee law, international law of armed conflict, international human rights law, come together and provide us with some ideas that might be useful, but there is no precision. Given that patchwork of legal framework, how can we make safe zones work as safe places for people who are caught up in conflict? The first thing that should be said is that past experience has taught us that where safe zones have worked, it is where they have been agreed by the parties to the conflict. They're consensual. So there are examples from Bangladesh in the 70s, from Sri Lanka in the 1990s, where particular areas within those conflicts were respected by both sides and where people could go and no attack was placed. Where they've failed is where they've been imposed from outside. 
best example that everyone will remember is Srebrenica. This was, these were areas within the former Yugoslavia that were deemed sort of safe by the United Nations, and yet Srebrenica still casts a very long shadow. There were similar experiences in Rwanda, and today we can look to South Sudan, where the Security Council has acted under Chapter 7, has given the peacekeepers the mandate to use all necessary means to protect civilians, and yet civilians are still attacked. So, if safe zones are going to be used, you need to be certain that all parties to the conflict, and just remember the complexity of the conflict going on in Syria, mm. before one even thinks of setting up safe zones, you'd have to try and get all those various actors to agree that in their best interests, certain parts of the country should not be the object of attack. Taking all that into account, why do you think we are even talking about this today? Why are leaders around the world, from Angela Merkel in Germany to US President Donald Trump to the leaders of Turkey and Russia and Iran, calling for safe zones in Syria? I think there are mixed motives. Some of them are humanitarian. One only has to think of the number of people who have died crossing the Mediterranean this year. And that's before one even takes into account those who die trying to get to the North African coast. If one could set up a zone within the conflict area that was safe so that people didn't have to try and flee people didn't have to try and get out of the conflict zone in the first place, then put themselves at the mercy of people smugglers, human traffickers. That would be a good thing. That, though, is not the only motivation that one can read into the various calls. One also has to remember the barbed wire that has been put up across borders in Europe to stop people trying to seek asylum. One remembers all those scenes where tear gas was used, where water cannon was used, to prevent people seeking the basic protection, okay, in a safe third country. And the idea that a safe zone might in some way encourage people to stay rather than flee and come to the global north, that is the less palatable part of the safe zone argument. The third element, and it's one that's come to the fore with the idea of de-escalation zones put forward as part of the Astana process by Russia, Iran and Turkey. I mean, let's face it, they haven't even used, they've been honest. These are not safe zones. These are de-escalation zones. They've even accepted that there could still be conflict in them. So no way would one describe them as safe. But clearly, another aspect of the calls for safe zones, is power politics in the region. Who is going to be in control of parts of the country? How is this going to be played out in practice? So I think those are ideas that underpin the call for safe zones. Some are humanitarian, some not quite so humanitarian. And the end result being that some version of this can create the least worst alternative. I think what you've got to accept is that safe zones imposed from outside 
I'm not a good idea. However, there are going to be times when people are trapped. Mm. People who cannot get out of the conflict zone. In those circumstances, the safe zone will arise, not necessarily consensually, but out of a sense that there is no alternative for the individuals, the civilians who are trapped. And in those circumstances, they can be the least worst alternative. If you cannot get out, at least have a working area within a conflict where there is some limited respect for the protection of civilians, which should be fundamental in any armed conflict, which often isn't. So... We can come up with conditions? Not so much conditions, but one can think of basic ideas that should be a necessary forerunner to even recognise that this area could be deemed a safe zone. Okay, For instance, you've got to make certain that food and basic medical supplies can get in. You're going to need safe corridors. You're going to need humanitarian actors such as the International Committee of the Red Cross, UNHCR, World Food Programme to be able to get into that area to, to provide people with the basic needs. You're going to have to have some idea that human rights, and not just the right to life, but the right to access healthcare, the right to access foodstuff. So may, may, just getting to markets, for instance, one day a week. Okay, The right to access work, if at all possible. And the right to access schooling. If people are going to be trapped in these safe zones, and one should hope that they can live as normal a life as possible. If not, one should not be thinking about setting up a safe zone. One should be pushing for peace and one should be pushing for safe corridors, not as a way to get stuff in, but as a way to get non-fighter civilians out, such as a way to seek asylum. Because fundamental to international law in this area is the right for everybody to be able to seek asylum. And if a safe zone were being created in a way that tried to reduce that possibility, then that is fundamentally wrong. Given everything you've just said and the world that we're observing today, the extreme conflicts that do raise this as a real um, topic of political discussion, what would we do to make this a more tenable idea in the future? I think the starting point has got to be that there are basic minimum criteria. Okay, We've already talked about safe corridors as a way of moving around within a safe zone, possibly, uh, as a, possibly as a way out, but definitely as a way for aid to get in. Those, so the safe corridors are fundamental to safe zones. But if they're going to be treated with respect, if people are going to trust them, there have to be two parallel processes. One is that at the same time, the international community is pushing for peace. If you're going to set up a safe zone, this is not some permanent solution. This is a temporary fix. So it's only going to be temporary if a real push for peace in the region is being made by the international community. So 
a log-jammed Security Council, which is what we've seen within with respect to Syria, is no basis for setting up safe zones because what are you trying to do? Set up an area of the country that is going to be forever safe from the ongoing conflict around? No. The peace process has to be fundamental to this. Equally, if people are going to trust these safe zones, they have to know that those who violate them are going to be held accountable in the future, that there is no escape for those who breach the basic fundamental principle of protection of civilians. So individuals who commit crimes against within safe zones, against the population there, they need to know that they're going to be prosecuted. The International Criminal Court is a good starting point, but that's not mandatory, okay? So we need to make certain that in these cases, there's got to be a way of prosecuting the people who commit crimes, the individuals. With regard to the states that are involved, they need to be held to account for pushing peace. There needs to be a way of making certain that countries that are involved in making the conflict last longer are held to account by the Security Council through sanctions, for instance, as a way of making the push for peace stronger. And finally, and this is in the light of Srebrenica, the UN itself has got to be accountable where it has made errors. One has to remember that peacekeepers don't just answer to the UN, they also answer to their own governments. So just because the peacekeepers aren't doing their job properly, that does not mean the UN is at fault. But occasionally the UN has to be held accountable. The UN has privileges and immunities. That means that it's not liable before domestic courts in countries for any breach. We saw this with the Mothers of Srebrenica case brought in the Netherlands. But if the UN is going to rely on its immunities... It's got to set up parallel internal compensation mechanisms so that people whose rights were violated as a consequence of UN failure can seek compensation from the organisation. Thank you. There's so much in this policy brief and so much in this issue. Thank you very much for answering our questions and being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening.